Isabel. I'm Morgan. And this is Momance. A podcast about romance novels. About Toronto. About Jane Austen. About awkward shy boys. (laughs) About truths universally acknowledged or known? Known. (laughs) About substitute teaching where dreams go to die. (laughs) About weird cousin relationships. About really ineffectual slash super effectual HR departments. About fundamentalism. About stereotypes. But mostly it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week we are going to discuss Aisha at Last by Uzma Jalaluddin. Should I get right to it? Yeah, let's read the back of the book. Let's get people up to speed. A modern day Muslim pride and prejudice for a new generation of love. Aisha Shamsi had a lot going on. Her dreams of being a poet have been set aside for a teaching job so she can pay off her debts to her wealthy uncle. She lives with her boisterous Muslim family and is always being reminded that her flighty younger cousin, Hafsa, is close to rejecting her hundredth marriage proposal. Though Aisha is lonely, she doesn't want an arranged marriage. Then she means Halid, who is just as smart and handsome as as he is conservative and judgmental. She is irritatingly attracted to someone who looks down on her choices and dresses like he belongs in the 7th century. When a surprise engagement is announced between Halid and Hafsa, Aisha is torn between how she feels about the straightforward Halid and the unsettling new gossip she hears about his family. Looking into the rumors, she finds she has to deal with not only what she discovers about Halid, but also the truth she realizes about herself. Yeah, so another Pride and Prejudice adaptation, which Isabeau is just flicking her nipples right now the thought of a pride and prejudice update always 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 (laughs) and also yeah a really interesting retelling not just because we have a muslim lead character which is not something that we've encountered before but also just because of how the author thinks about the structure of pride and prejudice and really like the idea of adaptation which i'm sure is going to be like a really fun zesty conversation but we have to have it because it's so interesting and so good i'm sure that's what you guys tune in for. It is. Okay, so this is actually mm-hmm. interesting because sort of a cartoon cover, certainly not a traditional romance novel cover. You know why Berkeley the diversity has... roster at Berkeley. Indeed, a cartoon cover on a diversity romance. Neat, Berkeley. I actually appreciate it. You know, there's like some real investment here. There's multiple textures. I love the hot pink lips. In the shape of a heart. Yeah, it feels accessible without being so cartoonish yeah. as to muddle the inside. Of course, there's there's no sex in this. It's a sweet romance. Yeah, it's sweet, but it's got some heat. It's a sweet heat romance. It's like the first tick on the heat meter. Uh, Yeah, I don't know, though. I mean, like, well, it felt like a little bit more intense than the first tick. Because Pride and Prejudice is pretty intense. (laughs) It's pretty intense. You know, we've been talking a lot lately about, like, old structures and how well they work. And I think oftentimes whenever people adapt Pride and Prejudice, they tend to do, like, a straight one-to-one ratio, right? Like, this is my Elizabeth. This is my Darcy. This is my Mr. Collins. This is my Catherine de Bourgh. You know, and just do that kind of like recasting and then like put them in a new setting. Um, Whereas I think our author here is really thinking about what works about Pride and Prejudice and what's appealing about it and does a great job of molding that clay into a story that she wants to tell. Mm -hmm. So for example, Aisha is our Elizabeth Bennett and 
Khalid is our Mr. Darcy. But her cousin Hafsa is serving as Kitty Lydia, which if I'm giving Jane Austen a note here a hundred years later, it's like you could probably shed one of those two sisters. <laughs> yeah. But is also working as kind of an almost a Charlotte. But then her friend Clara is also working as a Charlotte and a Jane. Like she's really finding like what is important, right? A family connection, a family obligation, a flightiness a steadfastness, Mm -hmm. is really thinking about character and movement rather than plot. Right, and I think this is one of the great things where someone who truly understands that adaptation is more about spirit than about dogma. Exactly. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's about spirit rather than dogma. And it is for me, to give you a little preview of how I felt about Mm -hmm. this book, one of the few Pride and Prejudice adaptations that is still interesting. Yeah, I think this was more successful than Pride as a Pride and Prejudice Mm -hmm. retelling. Yeah. And it's because I think this author really took the flexibility of a structure and then made it work for themselves and like wasn't yeah. trapped by the idea that like oh Jane Austen's like the mother of romance and what do I do no this is a cool structure let me do the thing that I need to do yeah. with the scaffold I feel like totally gets rid of the idea of like big beautiful house yeah. or like all of that which people seem to like really cling to when yes. they're adapting Pride and Prejudice what's the house called fuck so there's Pemberley Pemberley Netherfield Park Netherfield Park is let it last everyone wants a netherfield park is let at last moment for some reason and i get it it's like that scene in the original pride and prejudice is really fun like yeah her it mom is. and her family yeah. and everything but i think what uzma realizes is that we're on a first name basis <laughs> What I think the book is expressing is understanding that what's fun about that scene has nothing to do with the house. Right. It's everything to do with, like, the spirit of a family. Right. And so she does have Hafsa's mother, Aisha's aunt, tends to be this kind of flighty, we have to marry them off type. Who because brings we that have energy. four daughters. Yeah, who brings that energy and comic relief. Right. It's just very well done adaptation. Yes, I think this is an excellent adaptation. And one of the things that's really interesting about having the interiority of Darcy, because of course we don't have Darcy's interiority in the original Pride and Prejudice, is that Halid is so awkward. So awkward. And like, there were moments where I was like watching the worst parts of The Office where it's like, I like actually felt myself cringing. Yeah. And it's like, I imagine especially in the Matthew McFadden adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, like he plays awkward with like the thing that you do when you feel awkward and terrible or even like potentially humiliated is like you become closed off and mean. Yeah. And like, that's exactly what Halid did. Yeah. Where he's like, you're laughing at me. I hate you. Yeah. And then like having his interiority was such a successful maneuvering into a modern Darcy where it's like, I understand these moves so clearly, even though this is a very traditional Muslim man that, you know, wears a skull cap and prays five times a day. And I'm like, it's totally outside of my experience. Has a long, ungroomed beard. Yeah. When the author was describing this person, I'm like, why is Ruben saying that he's hot? And then like, I remembered the um, guy who played Jafar in the live action Aladdin. He posts these amazing thirst trap photos and he had this incredible beard when he was working out and I was like uh. I thought it was just because he was tall I'm easily convinced <laughs> it's, it's like my greatest shame is that someone's like he was tall and then like at some other point in the book she's like reflecting on his height and I was like oh yeah yeah he's hot, he's hot. <laughs> 
Like, I'm just like so easily, like you could tell me nothing else. I hate that about myself. I'm the most easily duped asshole in romance reading. Oh, you say he's tall? Hot. Hot. Oh, oh, so he's hot. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you for the consideration. Like when we get into his interiority, when we see the other world experience him, yes. we fully cringe. And there were times when I was like, am I cringing because I'm a white? And I don't understand. And I'm like, just be nice to the HR, you know, like the HR ladies trying to help you out. And then I'm like, no, that's me being prejudiced. And it took me a while to be like, oh, no, obviously, like the writer is making me feel this on purpose. Like right. she knows what she's doing. I'm uncomfortable when I'm uncomfortable and I'm comfortable when I'm comfortable. But I did come to this with like my like, talking to be a good white person <laughs> hat on. And then I just like got so deep into my mm-hmm. head. And the book does a good job of just transcending my like being bad at reading and assumptions. Will, and I think one of the things that was so accessible and like this author lives in Toronto and like is this is an own voice. And so like one of the things that she gave us well-meaning white ladies was this character of Clara and she put her in the HR position, which then helped us navigate moments of prejudice throughout the novel because there's this moment where Aisha says he's a fundamentalist he like belongs in the 7th century and then Clara's like no you're wrong about him and you're being prejudiced in this moment Mm -hmm. and that was a moment where it's like Clara was speaking for and to the reader at once I didn't feel talked down to by Clara Mm -hmm. and I also understood that she was a lot for me yeah and that like that was a weird thing to know and both feel about this character but also the fact that she has a series of issues and like the way in which purposed as both Jane and Charlotte for Aisha's Elizabeth was like a really interesting move because there are a couple really awkward scenes with Clara herself I just like thought there were so many moves about this book where it's like it didn't feel like a special episode of like Muslims in Toronto (laughs) but I also understood that this book had a project and its project was to call out Islamophobia but the project never bogged down the plot or the story. I disagree. Oh, okay. Here's where the project, I think, got bogged down. And I want to compare this to Heartbeat Braves, which okay. had a lot of, like, in-own voices stuff. Mm-hmm. This book pauses to provide us with definitions of terms. It does do that a lot. And italicizes terms, which is to other the language of the characters Mm -hmm. in a way that was distracting to me. And I understand why the choice was made. Mm -hmm. I just think there are probably people who really enjoy that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hang out with those people. Yeah, I I don't think we (laughs) needed a really strong explanation of what ghee is. Yeah, there's a moment where it explains ghee. But like, there's also, you know, there's stuff that I didn't know without the definition, but I can look it up. Mm-hmm. I can look it up. I don't want to say it was talking down. It can feel that way whenever there's something like ghee. Mm-hmm. But I acknowledging some people who read this don't know what ghee is. But it's like, just let it ride. Mm-hmm. Like, let the reader uncover these terms on their own. Let them do the work. Mm-hmm. Don't do the work for them. Because I think that does center a specific kind of reader. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, don't do that. I would say that, like, I especially noticed it with the clothes rather than the food. Although the ghee one really stood out to me. Although I will say the food in this book, talking about like Mediterranean, Middle Eastern food in a way more interesting way than The Wrath and the Dawn did. It really like emphasized for me. I was like, well, maybe I was wrong about that. And then reading this book, which had just like 
Uh, also, one of our main characters, very interested in food, and I connected with him so much about that. Like, the, you know, having a hard day at work and just, like, looking forward to what you're going to cook, getting excited to cook. I was so resentful of his mother oh my for, God. like, not yeah. letting him cook. I really identified with him and that, and, you know, just really captured a true feeling of being someone who enjoys making food. Yeah. And what a solace that kind of thinking and, and work can be mm-hmm. anyways no I thought that was excellent and especially like the moments where like cooking was shared or cooking was like taught like there's a moment with Aisha and Khalid and her grandmother where they're making burrata what are they they're making you a burrata's right cheese <laughs> Whiting all over the place. Thank you. And like the care in which, (laughs) whiting all over the place. The care in which Nani is showing Aisha and Halid how to make the bread and like why you put the pocket in it. And then he goes home to his own mother, who is not a cook. Yeah. And hates it when he cooks, even though she's terrible at it. And like the way in which food is not only a communication of culture, but like a communication of care and like one of the love languages. Yeah. I thought this book was really smart about. Also, like even going to a caterer. Yeah. Oh my God. All the scenes of the caterer. (laughs) So good. And I love that it's the one caterer. Yeah, I Uh, do too. And this book also has like great comedic relief. It really does. Um, I wouldn't say I was like LOLing. No, but I was definitely smiling. Yeah, I definitely was. It was effective. Masood, who is a <laughs> professional wrestler slash life coach, as our Mr. Collins. Oh my God. And he's texting Aisha all the time. And rather, and like, this is one of the things where it's like. And this- I know that hustler. Totally. Who's like, fully going on dates to try yeah. to promote his, his own business. business. And his mom is doing the same. Loved it. But like, this is one of those moments where like the scaffolding of Pride and Prejudice, this book wasn't so dogmatically tied, where it's like, Mr. Collins is often portrayed as ridiculous and even gross. Yeah. And. Masood was like absurd and like yeah. so funny in those moments yeah. where it's like the Mr. Collins character, I think. Masood really... was more like a Mr. Collins meme. Right. Than Mr. Mr. Collins, Collins in the book. Right. And I think that's actually. Or like a very sympathetic portrayal of Mr. Collins. Right. Which is just like the Matthew McFadden <laughs> version where that guy. He's such a good character actor and he's in he's so, so fucking much. much. But like when he gets that little flower for Elizabeth, I love that scene. Tom Hollander. Tom Hollander. Yeah. And he's such an empathetic Mr. Collins. Really soft. He kind of like softens. He kind of rounds out the vowels of Mr. Collins. What a good way to express that. And Masood in that like slot isn't rounding out the vowels, but he's playing up the comedy in a way that doesn't take pot shots at that character. Right. But is like there intentionally to like liven up the mood. Yeah. Whenever he and Hafsa start singing the song together in the car, absolutely apropos <laughs> of nothing. I was like, oh, they're going to fall in love. Yeah. That was enough for me. Yeah. I think that's also, you know, just like those small moves that can really round out a character are throughout this book. Yes. One character who didn't get rounded out, mm-hmm. I would say is Clara's fiance. Rob. Rob, who they're always just like, he's an idiot for not proposing to her. Clara was a very triggering character <laughs> for me. <laughs> <laughs> Personally, like between like her having to manage a boss who feels tumultuous is something that tyrannical. Yeah, is something that 
I, I can say I've related to in my life. Her like panic, but also her shock and not knowing what to do from there, I understood mm-hmm. as well. And I was a little hurt by the fact that the book really felt like baffled by Clara's relationship. Clara's relationship yeah. with Rob, for sure, yeah. was baffling to the text itself. Yeah. And I agree. I think that's a really strong point. Clara has been in a relationship with her boyfriend for a very, very, very long time. A decade. Rewind even before that, though, like, the HR situation that Clara finds herself in. She has this new boss, Sheila. They all have this new director. And Sheila meets Khalid, and he doesn't shake her hand because he's a very conservative Muslim and won't shake the hands of women. And Sheila, who worked in Saudi Arabia for like a series of months, takes an immediate strong dislike, calls Clara and she's like, we need to fire this guy. Give me the reason to do it. And Clara's like, can't do it, won't do it. He's a great guy. You need to like check yourself. But she has to like manage the situation up. So what she ends up deciding to do is like, if I make Halid seem softer, then... Sheila won't have as much reason to fire him. So she like invites him out on these like weird work excursions and eventually invites him to her apartment where we have this very weird dinner scene. So it's like one of the ball stand-ins because it turns out you can get rid of the big nice houses, but you can't get rid of the big nice social gatherings. Right. (laughs) Where awkward happens. Yeah, yeah, where awkward happens. It is a weird move for an HR person to be like, do you know what would be really great for you is if you came out with me, your HR person, to a bar. Even though you don't drink. Uh, yeah. Definitely come, though. In addition to helping you keep your job, you'll also meet my other Muslim. <laughs> In my pack of three, <laughs> she is one. Kiss. <laughs> yeah. Which is not great. Definitely a truism, though. Yes. Super true. Yeah, do you remember in Sex and the City when they just tried to force their two gays together? I was just thinking about that. And it was described that way. I'm quoting the show. Right, and that scene was tough. And, like, you know, Aisha calls it out. She's like, you brought the only Muslim that you know to meet another Muslim at Bella's. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. You goof. But we also have Amir, who's a very different kind of Muslim, and his friends. Amir is... Khalid's office mate. Oh, I want to talk about Clara more. I wanted to give all that backstory. So like forward again, we go to this very intimate dinner that she has planned to soften Khalid's image at work. And she also invites Aisha to this intimate dinner at her house where Rob has made pad thai with ketchup. Rob being her college boyfriend who has not proposed. And so Khalid being a conservative Muslim who's been invited over to this dinner immediately assumes that Rob and Claire are married and then like asks innocently, how long have you guys been married? And Rob's like, we ain't married. But also like Clara's devastated. Yeah. And then they have to do this thing where they like fight. Well, but also the way they propose, like Clara ends up utilizing Muslim method of courtship and proposal mm-hmm. in order to propose to him. And oh yeah, they mentioned Khalid the- gives him like a dowry for her. Yeah, they mentioned the fact that the Prophet Muhammad, one of his wives, proposed to him multiple times. It just uh, like there's no understanding for that lifestyle. Yeah, like it's just presented as like silliness and like sadness mm-hmm. and like a lack of communication and inefficient and I mean it just didn't come across as a very sympathetic portrayal mm-hmm. of living in sin. <laughs> Indeed. It did not. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to say. It might be my weirdest part, actually. Okay. Yeah, Rob was a ding-dong. Clara was also a ding-dong. Yeah. 
I didn't like her interiority, but I liked her scenes of action where she's like, this is what I need to do. This is how I manage up. This is how I do this. Or like the scene where we first meet her with Aisha, where they're like also an amazing amount of period shame in just like two paragraphs. And Aisha, who's from Saskatchewan or like some like very... Clara. Clara. Yeah, she's from a rural part of of Canada Canada and moves to Toronto. And the way that she comes to Aisha's defense was great. And their friendship seemed very organic and really supportive. And I loved all that. It seemed like the book was trying to be nice to Clara, but wasn't really empathetic to Clara. Right. Like, didn't know how. It's like, here's a well-meaning white. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed like a tokenization, (laughs) uh, which I guess is how it feels. Maybe the book is doing that on purpose. Maybe that's the book's project, is to show us what tokenization feels like. To show us whites what tokenization feels like. Anyway. That'd be a pretty punk rock move. Yeah, it would. What? I'm like, I don't think that that's what Claire is doing. But <laughs> You like, think it's just like I not th- a good character. No, I honestly think that the thing that Claire is supposed to do is less be character and more be like doorframe, where it's like, let me help usher so you ta- through. So token. Yeah. yeah. I think like she is like a... White guide. Like I said, I think the book is nice to Clara, but doesn't understand her or... And is actively dismissive of her lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she's a plot device. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rather than a whole person. Right. But her personhood is shown in opposition of like the mainstream of the book. Mm-hmm. So it comes across as tokenization. Mm-hmm. That's how tokenization happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the like named white characters in this book, and it's really just Clara and oh. Sheila. And Rob. And Rob. But he is way less talking. Yeah. And it's, like, interesting that the way in which white female characters are marshaled in this novel, now that I'm thinking about it, is actually interesting. Yeah, because there's the fat southern ladies who call him (laughs) honey and dear. And babe. And, like, try to help him with Aisha on the phone call and stuff. And recognize immediately what she is doing. Loud and and over the top and and forceful. Mm -hmm. And then there's Sheila, who is the villainess, who sounds pretty fucking cool in the beginning with her, like, brooches that are, like, spiders and and scorpions and and snakes. She's like, I like to let people know what they're dealing with ahead of time. She sounds fucking cool, and then it's like... She's a bad boss. And then we're like, guess what? She's a racist. Yeah. But she's not really a racist. She's just prejudiced against fundamentalist, you know, and like, I would be like, oh, she made assumptions based on what he was wearing, but it was also that he refused to touch her. But then she like set out to like deliberately sabotage him. Yeah, which sucks. I don't know what's going on with Sheila. I would be like, oh, the book is really empathetic to this idea of like religious dress and everything. But then at the end, Khalid is wearing like a suit with a pocket square and is like dapper looking by Mm -hmm. Western Standards. Traditional standards, and then we're like, ooh, the transformation, so dreamy. And it's interesting that that transformation in terms of this novel, because, like, Darcy also goes through that transformation. Like, he wears, like, a very high stock collar and, like, all of this other stuff. But when we see him at Pemberley, he's much more relaxed. His clothes yeah. are much more relaxed. He goes through a style transformation as well in the text. And so, like, the idea that Halid's style transformation is from very traditional Muslim dress to 
traditional fancy western dress yeah like it is a relaxation but it's not it's not yeah but it's also like he becomes like a sexual being right he enters into the western clothing yeah and the western appearance which is really interesting because our main character Aisha she wears a hijab a hijab and she wears like loose fitting clothing and there's a lot of talk of clothing and like Mm -hmm. what it's like Hafsa is described as wearing tight clothing Mm -hmm. and things like that. And also Khalid's sister, Zarina, he talks about seeing her in like red lipstick Mm -hmm. and tight pants and high heels and things like that. And so there is like a real kind of danger almost associated with wearing tight Western clothes Mm -hmm. for women. Mm Mm-hmm. But then when Khalid dons Western attire, Mm -hmm. he also becomes like a sexual being, but in a positive way. Right. No, when you talk about Western dress as danger in the book. It's not Western dress. It's just tighter clothing. Tighter clothing. Or like stuff that isn't. Or like adaptation, like like pulling things in. Yeah. Because one of the things that the imam of the mosque does is he wears these like bright Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. Khalid's mother is like deeply offended by that. Yeah. And like that's one of the indicators that this imam is like less serious, but also like somehow less pure. Yeah. And like he's just a very jovial man. Yeah. Who likes bright colors and Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. (laughs) This book talks about clothing a lot and Mm -hmm. I understand why. Because it's a site of difference. Mm -hmm. And I do think this book is talking to white audiences Mm -hmm. as much as any other. I don't know what that is. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is to be like, look at his sexy transformation. And now he wants to be sexy for the girl he likes. And he's going to not be himself. I think one of the hardest parts about that transformation is because for so much of the book, it was like Aisha having to learn that Halid felt most comfortable in his traditional dress. Yeah. And she's like, that is who he is. And if he were to wear a regular, like, gap, you know, button down, he would be pretending and he's yeah. uncomfortable with that. And so much of her character work was, like, destigmatizing Being her assumptions about him. Yeah. Right. And so then his transformation, it's like that thing in Greece, right? It's the end when, like, Sandy well, yeah, exactly. puts on the tight pants. But he just learned to love her for who Where she you, was in her sweater set. Right. And now he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, I got chills. Oh. And it's like, go- you did all the good work and we did the work with you like why undo it this way (laughs) why is this happening yeah and so like that's where it like yeah that's what I felt because like I was like ooh but then I was like oh but we we literally spent this whole book like deconstructing this prejudice yeah 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 this week's episode is brought to you by Sabrina Jeffries, The Bachelor. From one of the biggest names in historical romance, New York Times bestselling author Sabrina Jeffries comes the second in a sparkling series about an oft-widow's mother's grown children who blaze through society in their quest for the truth about their fathers. In the process, they may just find that love can conquer all, even for a headstrong young lady with a scandalous secret to hide. So that's compelling enough that, Isabel, you actually picked up this book in the airport in San Antonio. Is that right? I sure did. Military City, USA. Got this at the romance (laughs) section in the San Antonio airport. What made you pick it up? This outstandingly gorgeous cover in this like beautiful purple and yellow dress. We've got open-shirted dude. We've got a lady with a bow and arrow. She looks awesome. And also, Morgan, if I'm being totally honest, I got it because of the title because I know how much you like The Bachelor. It's true. I feel lukewarm about Duck Dynasty, which is the other pun reference. 
It's a deep dynasty. Yeah, yeah. But totally. I'd seen Sabrina Jeffries. I know that she's award-winning and New York Times bestselling and USA Today bestselling author with more than 50 novels. I'd seen her name around, but I'd never actually read one of hers. So I thought this was the perfect opportunity. Yeah, to get started. Cool. So definitely pick up The Bachelor by Sabrina Jeffries if you're looking for a historical with an oft-widowed mother. I mean, the story centers around the daughter, Gwen Drake. And what's great about this is it's playing on the bodyguard trope. Her last name is Drake, and it's a pun on Duck Dynasty. Yeah. Like, come on. Sabrina Jeffries is funny. (laughs) She's operating. It sounds like somebody is an English professor. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she did a lot of cultural criticism before she made the leap into romance. Yeah, Sabrina Jeffries writes smart, witty, inventive romances. Her novels offer the perfect historical romance comfort food that readers crave. I would go ahead and agree with that. One of the reasons that the bodyguard trope is a trope that I've never really been into is because I love the film The Bodyguard with Whitney Houston uh-huh. and Kevin Costner. And this has those vibes, hardcore. So okay. pick All up right. a copy. Thank you. So definitely, if you want to support us, please support our sponsors like The Bachelor by Sabrina Jeffries, put out by Z. Zebra books. Zebra. What was your weirdest part? Great question. There are a couple of weird parts for me. So Aisha accidentally slash on purpose impersonates her cousin Hafsa. And the fact that Halid gets to know her as Hafsa and not Aisha and then develops real feelings for her and like they develop this whole thing together. And then when it's finally revealed that she is indeed not Hafsa, but Hafsa spinster older cousin, that fall apart was really weird. But especially the fact that Halid's mother slash Catherine de Berg knew much earlier, but then called the real Hafsa to be like, this thing's happening your older cousin who's only ever been good to you and has only ever helped you and has only ever like fucking covered for you. She's trying to steal your man. The man you didn't even want. Like fucking get on this Hafsa. Yeah. I was like, fuck you Hafsa. Catherine de Berg like enlisting Lydia. That actually felt really weird that Hafsa would have fallen for that ploy yeah. and felt those feelings. And then the rest of the book where like Hafsa's been calling and texting Aisha basically every day and like really Really relying on her like an older sister. And then in the latter half of the book, once Farzana has enlisted her as like an agent, she's just like really, really mean to Aisha in a way that like yeah. the split was too immediate. There wasn't anything for me to hold on to when that split happened. Yeah. So then it felt like, God, fuck you, Havza. Like, what? Yeah. why are you being this way? So we have a sexy, dangerous Wickham in <sighs> Yeah, Tart. he is very and sexy, though. Aisha's never like really attracted to him. Right, which is she- a departure. Yeah, she stays true Mm -hmm. to her... Uh, romantic interest. Uh, But she does see him as a more empathetic character. And I think the book sees him as a more empathetic character than, you know, the original Wickham is often understood or interpreted. But the Catherine de Bourgh character is somehow made worse and less relatable (laughs) in this retelling, which is really an interesting shift. It is a really interesting shift. And I think especially because, like, the way in which she sends... Zarina into a forced marriage in Hyderabad. Yeah. And like, then the Darcy letter explaining Wickham's rumors. It's like it doesn't make it better. 
Yeah. It's like, oh no, it still happened. Yeah. But you still kind of like let it happen. And it's basically exactly the way the rumor said, rather than like the fact that yeah. Darcy's letter takes charge by charge. Yeah. Where he's like, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Here's yeah. where I accept responsibility. Yeah. And I'll fix it. And also the fact that like Aisha's hangups, she was like, best case scenario, he just stood by and let this happen. And it's like, yeah. And she's like, and that's still a terrible case scenario. And it's like, yeah, that is what happened. That is what happened. I mean, to be fair, he was 14. Fair enough. But he hasn't like stood up to his mother. No. He still lives at home with her. Yeah, he doesn't stand up to her. And even when he's going to marry Hafsa and not Aisha, he says that he's going to invite his sister and his mother says, I have no daughter. And he doesn't immediately challenge her. And like, that sucks. But I guess we all settle. In some ways. Here's the real tea. Here's the H-E-A. We all settle. Guess what? The hero that you've ended up with, it's not that you're just settling for him. He's settling for you a little bit too. I believe that's called compromise. It's called settling. <laughs> hot take. <laughs> I know it's true. How is that a hot take? I think like that's half full, half empty, like compromise versus settling. Like I don't feel like... Halid and Aisha are settling for each other. I think they compromise. And like that's why Pride and Prejudice is a perennial favorite. No, I'm not like, I'm not talking about a book. I'm talking about real life. Oh yeah, we all settle for each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, in books we don't settle. Yeah, that's yeah, why we yeah, read yeah. them. If there's any reason to read a romance novel, it's because no one is settling. They're compromising. And not even necessarily <laughs> compromising. Most of the time I don't think they're compromising. Somebody I think they're has like, to learn something. Suddenly, like, I don't think they're compromising so much as being like, I thought it was a character. <laughs> but it really makes you more perfect which is not how settling works or <laughs> compromise it's true it turns out that thing you didn't like is actually better than the thing you did like is not the same as compromise no i was just reflecting on real life oh okay sexiest part <laughs> <laughs> Segway. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and before I get started, Mm -hmm. I would like to go ahead and put a moratorium on you using any Shakespeare quotes as your sexiest part. There are lots of Shakespeare quotes. So much Shakespeare in this. And I know you love that. When have I used a Shakespeare quote as my sexiest part? Not that you were going to, just that in case you were, I want to stop you. I wasn't. Okay. Don't. I won't. That wasn't even on it. Lots of Shakespeare. Lots of Shakespeare, including from some of the tragedies, which I very much liked. Yeah. All of it. There's a lot of Shakespeare. There's a good little glossary in the back as well to help mm-hmm. you locate the Shakespeare. Lots of Tempest, lots of You stuff. know, I, I think it's actually a really good segue you talking about your weirdest part being kind of the deception because mm-hmm. when she's hanging up the decorations for the engagement party mm-hmm. and she knows that he's engaged to the real Hafsa, but mm-hmm. he doesn't. He thinks he's engaged to her. And he sneaks into the house during the setup to give her this blue leather notebook to write her poetry in. Like everything he says, him revealing his true feelings in those weeks and moments leading up to discover he's been bamboozled. Just like all the heat, all the flutters, Uh, which is this is really a book that trades in deep heat and flutters. And of course, I was all the more devastated by the fact knowing that they're doomed in that moment. Yeah, it was so good. 
Yeah, that was so good. When I think of my future, I see you. Yeah. And it's like the notebook that she wouldn't buy for herself. It was a perfect gift. It was a perfect, thoughtful gift, but it was also like being alone together Uh, when it's not appropriate. And uh, and his like scarf touches her arm. And like touching her like piece of fabric. It was so good. That was very good. That was going to be my sexiest part. Uh Uh-oh. What would be my second most sexiest part? I think, you know, the way that he talks about her at the very beginning before they have their miscommunication at Bella's, there's this whole thing because he actually lives across the street from her. He sees her and she's like constantly like running to get into her car to go to work because she's like, he watches her every morning. Every morning. And he's like developed this like strange sort of like habit of watching this very competent, busy person with her red mug like go about her morning. And like the fact that he's like kind of invented or is like, has a story for her and he's like impressed by like her red mug and like he does the thing where he's like and she wasn't too bad on the eyes either I don't think like that but if I did I like thinking about her hair and her hijab and like I like seeing her hips and like you know her coat and stuff in those ways like this book was really sexy like the ways in which they'd have a a sexy thought and then be like but I don't think that way and I was like but we know that you do because you just did yeah I loved that I thought it was a little weird but I think, like, he's kind of a weirdo. He's totally a weirdo. And so it, it works out. I also, before we round things out, I do want to talk about the character of Amir. I do, too. Who, that was another weirdest part for me. Oh, really? Who's dealing with homelessness and alcoholism, kind of exacerbated by his homelessness because he's trying to have sex with women so he has a place to sleep at night. Yeah. But there's some sticky stuff there. There's a lot of sticky stuff there. Which I'm sure we'll talk about. But I do want to acknowledge the scene in which Khalid decides that he really wants to help his friend. Mm -hmm. And so he's going to go to his first AA meeting with him and speak and kind of be a support system for him. It doesn't feel like a project, but is like a really effective way of describing what it means to be an advocate for someone and what it means to be an ally for someone. Mm -hmm. Really putting yourself out there in an uncomfortable situation, kind of doing the work for them. Like he found the meeting. He was brave enough to confront his friend about his drinking. That doesn't come across as pedantic or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Just very supportive and Mm -hmm. kind of going above and beyond. I think it's a little dicey going to an AA meeting and speaking for someone else or, you know, speaking for yourself. I understand there are people who do not have alcoholism, who don't even drink, who go to AA meetings because it feels good to share. I don't know how I feel about that because I'm not a person who goes to those meetings. But I thought it was a nice, like, if I could just talk about it as big picture metaphor, I felt like a really good example of how to put your neck out there really for the people that you care about. Mm -hmm. And that it doesn't have to be someone you're in love with or your best friend forever, Mm -hmm. You know, it can just be someone you have a working relationship with. Mm -hmm. And I think did a lot of great character development also for Khalid and showed that he was a a truly a good person at his core. Good thing they set that up for all the sister stuff. And they also set up how he's a good brother before the sister stuff got real. Yeah. One of the things about Amir that was really weird in the reading is like there was mention of toothpaste and a rumpled shirt and like being wrapped in a blanket on the couch in their shared office like twice. And I was like, I think Amir is homeless. Well, I thought it was obvious. I thought it was a part of the book until the book was like, realized something. I was like, oh, Oh. I thought he knew this the whole time. I thought we all knew this the whole time. 
yeah. So like the fact that it like came as a big reveal, like that was like. But then they were also like, and that's why he's promiscuous. He just wants a place to sleep at night. And it's like maybe. I guess Toronto housing prices are tough. But also like I don't think he's just having sex with strange women. As I don't think he's like sadly putting the bone down. Yeah. I mean maybe he is because this is a fictional character. Sure. Like whatever. And then the fact that like when they get to the AA meeting and Amir is like basically volunteers Khalid as the person who needs to be there rather than owning it himself and like that all seemed real but it also the fact that it was written comedically was weird to me because like when it started to happen when like this very earnest person at the AA meeting like then approaches Khalid and is like Cleopatra is the queen of denial uh 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 I was yeah. like it reminded me immediately of the scene in Matthew Prejudice when Bingley's like oh this is a disaster and then like Darcy like bows to him to like help him propose to Jane I'm like this is so much more serious than that I don't know why we're making jokes <laughs> like we've just found out Amir is homeless you, and an alcoholic that was weird the treatment you didn't of like it in the, the text. levity in the AA meeting no I felt like we needed a little <laughs> less of it frankly oh man good to know edit your shares if Isabeau rolls up to your meeting good god no I don't want you to edit your shares just edit, like don't make the Cleopatra's queen of denial yeah don't make that joke that's a civic joke in a fictional depiction of AA I'm glad you have notes I live my life giving notes I have notes on your shares thanks Womance or nomance? This is a womance for me. I thought it was a really excellent adaptation. Yeah, agreed. I, I did feel like this was a womance. I would recommend this uh, to anybody. It's great. Yep. Yep. With that. Loosen your stays. And there your principles. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. That's me. And Morgan. That's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frog podcast network discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast until next week Mwah.